Do you think he can fly? Shh. Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you... I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. And Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Man, it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. Alright, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank you. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. I mean, isn't that what so much of the world thinks? That the church thinks about them? That the church thinks about even the Bible that's supposed to be the good news? But it just sounds to the rest of the world like it's full of rules and bad news. You know, this Bible that Chris and I are focusing on, using the book by Rob Bell called What is the Bible, it generates a lot of cynicism. And the cynicism comes from, from pretty smart people. Smart people who realize that there are boring and foolish people who take religion seriously, and there are lucky and blessed people who didn't have to take it seriously and their lives worked out anyway. But most of us, most of us are somewhere in between. We long to understand God's word, to follow him with our hearts, but have it make sense in a way that's not, that's not awkward and embarrassing, but really, really gives us a path that's rewarding and fulfilling for our lives. I'm so glad you're here with us for Sunday number two of What is the Bible? When people ask me questions about scripture, about the Bible, um, I tend to realize that, first of all, I try to, to size up, okay, what kind, of, what kind of perspective are they bringing? Or, because I'm wearing glasses, I say, what kind of lenses are they looking at the Bible with? And that's going to be, the question of lenses is going to be part of our, our reflection today. 
when I hear from like skeptics, and we'll call this guy Skeptic Sam, something like, I don't believe in God, the Bible is full of contradictions. How do I answer that? Well, let me tell you how kind of some stereotypical answers could go. If you're a super churchy person, let's say church guy Chuck, church guy Chuck might say to that question, how dare you say that? The Bible's infallible. The Bible's inerrant. You just don't have enough faith. You don't have enough faith to trust God. You don't have enough faith or patience to wait to heaven and then you can get all your answers. Or you don't have enough faith to tell Satan to get out of your mind and go back to hell. Church guy Chuck is a little bit exhausting to be around. And skeptics like Skeptic Sam don't really ask him more than once. But then there's this other group of people that I think is a lot more common, especially in our part of the world. And I'm going to call this person Cynical Sally. So Skeptic Sam says, I don't believe in God. The Bible's full of contradictions. And Cynical Sally will say something like, oh, I know. That's one of the reasons that I don't take God too seriously. I mean... The Bible was just written by mortal people who had their own agendas and trying to create some, some uh, propaganda about their religion being the only right one. But, you know, it's good for the kids. It has lessons for them. And they make, some of the verses make good wall plaques. <laughs> that kind of answer is all around us in Johnson County, Kansas. And chances are, wherever it is that you're watching from. Neither of those extremes, the hyper-churchy, or kind of the cynical, is very helpful. In fact, I think one of the most helpful ways to, to address the question, what is the Bible, is, well, I'll call him Ralph. Reality Ralph, as opposed to Wreck-It Ralph, which is an entirely different um, goal. Reality Ralph would say this. If Skeptic Sam said, I don't believe in God, the Bible's full of contradictions, I think Reality Ralph would say something like this. Dude, I get it. Of course it's full of contradictions. And don't forget the violence, the misogyny, the geographical errors, the Bronze Age era science, the capriciousness, and the, even the mythical parts. But why does all that necessarily mean that you don't believe in God? Or that the Bible doesn't tell the story of the true and powerful and life-changing God that I follow and I wish you would too. Wow. If you meet a person like that reality Ralph, or let's not be gender exclusive, reality Rachel, you might be in for a fascinating conversation. And I kind of think that's what you're going to get as we read this book together. Let me just take a quick time out and say, if you haven't been part of the in-person um, cafe meetings that Pastor Chris is doing, if you live here in the Johnson County area, I invite you to do that. If you are too far away to be part of that, Put your questions in the chat box as the sermons go on, and those will be downloaded, and Chris and I, we will go through them and do our best to answer those um, in the next week. So, so do that for us, please. And Chris is looking at me like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> um, anyway, Rob Bell's book does a great job of explaining how some of the things that, that modern readers recoil from, how we can look at those with a different set of lenses, a different set of glasses, in order to understand it more fully and with less automatic, like, wah, awkwardness or pushback. To Pastor Chris's path point earlier about translations, a lot of the issue has to do with translation. As Rob Bell wrote, 
There's the world of the author, and there's the world of the translator. And then there's our world. And in all these worlds, some words are common and some aren't. And some concepts are familiar and some are totally new. Just coming up with a translation of, of the Bible in a particular language involves making thousands of decisions about what words you're going to use. And it's not just whether the words are translated well or correctly, but whether the reader, and sometimes even the translator, understands the cultural context around them. You know, one of the things that um, we frequently think about is, um, is the vengeance theme in the Bible. Not just the slaughter of women and children after an Israelite army conquers a pagan town, but the everyday language. You've, I'm sure, heard the expression, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that seems so, seems so vulgar and, and hostile and violent. Um, the, the phrase itself comes from Exodus 21, uh, 22 through 24. I'll put it up here on the screen. If people are fighting and if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, excuse me, there's a lot of appendages here, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. In other words, God could be telling me that if my son's friend from the baseball team accidentally pokes out my son's eye with a lawn dart after their game of darts turned into a battle of darts and they got mad at each other and started trying to hurt one another, I could demand that somebody poke out my neighbor kid's eye in return. Oh my gosh, you're thinking, that's horrible, horrifying, revolting. How could, how could you even think that? That's what the Bible says. But, but that's our modern understanding based on our, our contemporary context that's pretty enlightened and unless society really falls apart, values kindness and grace and forgiveness. Back then, in a dangerous, ancient, honor code culture like the, like the Bronze Age Canaanite world, man, if a neighbor kid poked out my son's eye, I would have the legal right to kill the kid. And culture would probably wink at it and understand if I killed the whole kid's family. I mean, it was psycho-violent. And so given that sense, this, this idea of just an eye for an eye and just a tooth for a tooth, in some ways that's downright de-escalating, almost progressive. I'll tell you, it all depends, what you see in scripture depends on what kind of glasses you're wearing, what kind of lenses you're looking through, and what's in your peripheral vision. So I've mentioned my glasses a couple of times. I, I'm imagining that a bunch of you also wear glasses or contact lenses. You know, just so that you know who else is in the room. If you wear glasses or contacts or you've had some sort of corrective eye surgery, would you just press the hand raise button? I would say press the heart button, but not everybody's thrilled that they've got glasses. I, I happen to think I need them. You know, I got this kind of doughboy face, so a little bit of structure is, is useful for me, but maybe you don't like your glasses. So anyway, put the hands up so we can see who's wearing those glasses. When we wear glasses, or contacts. We do it so that we can accomplish something, so that we can get something, so we can get a driver's license, or we can have fewer headaches, or most importantly, so we can just see clearly. I remember when my mom took me to get my first set of glasses in high school. I didn't know I needed glasses, and she probably didn't either until the you know school optometry test. I remember driving home from the Sears or JCPenney, whatever it is, wherever it is we went, to their optical department, 
And on the way home, I think my mom was driving because I was looking out the window and I thought, oh my gosh, who knew that trees had leaves you could see? I was so excited by being able to see new parts of the world with a clarity that I had never imagined possible. So depending on the the Bible glasses that you read, certain things seem clearer. Sometimes everything gets clearer. And so what we're learning through the Bell Book and I think through any intelligent Bible study is what's the glasses that we should put on to understand God's Word best? Now, I've been, a, I've been a Bible student, a Bible teacher, a lover of the Bible for most all my life. And as a Lutheran, some of the glasses, the lenses that I've worn, have been things like law and gospel, priesthood of all believers, the two kingdoms, the real presence in the sacraments. If those don't mean anything to you, doesn't matter, because I'm not talking about those today. But if you're a Lutheran, it's like, yeah, a mighty fortress, right? But one of the things that has really helped lately in my theological journey, and frankly, in my leadership journey through the kind of chaos of cultural issues nowadays, has been a a hermeneutic, a a set of lenses that aren't Lutheran, that come from the Presbyterian, Reformed, and, and, and Wesleyan even background. And that's the two covenant theory or the two covenant lens. Andy Stanley does a great job summarizing it in his book, Irresistible. Pastor Chris and I preached on that um, less than 18 months ago, and and I'd invite you to go back and search on our YouTube channel for Irresistible, um, what to do with the Old Testament, or what do we make of the Old Testament? I should have practiced that. Chris, what do we call it? You don't remember either. He doesn't remember either. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, anyway, irresistible, you'll find it on the YouTube channel. Anyway, in the two covenant theology understanding, God's purposes evolved as his plan and civilization moved forward. In the first covenant, in the Old Testament, or more properly said, in the Hebrew scriptures, God's covenant plan was he wanted to form a nation. He adopted a family, Abram and Sarah, and he made them a promise. The promise wasn't just that they would become mighty and big and that he would have the biggest family and he'd love them to death. He would use them to bless the rest of the world that wasn't in his adopted family. He had a plan for them. So there's this, there's this promise and plan, but there's also this covenantal expectation. And that, was, that came to be with, with Moses, right? Follow these rules, follow the Ten Commandments, the Levitical laws, follow these, honor these, keep them holy, and I will remain your God and keep you safe in the land that I'm leading you to. So it was this, you do this, I'll do this, and you will grow to be a nation. And then the new covenant was, once they had grown into a a relatively independent nation, a nation at least with, with history and experience, wisdom and character, from that nation he would raise up a Messiah, not just for Israel's sake, but for the whole world. And of course, that was Jesus Christ. Now, Simon Sinek, Simon Sinek um, has this great book, Start With the Why. And, and that's what God did. He started with the why. The why was, I love them. I love my creation, and I want to be close to them and give them a way to be close to me. And so the what that came from that why was the covenant. I'm going to give them guidelines and rules, commandments, so that they follow them, they stay healthy, they become a nation, and we grow close to one another so that they will not just be blessed, but they will be a blessing. 
And that's when the story of God really gets going. So, so the why was I love them, the what was the old covenant, and the how, well, that was all the sub-laws that they were going to follow to make that covenant come true. Now, the, the new covenant in Jesus Christ was two things. Number one, God fulfilled the purpose of the old covenant, the purpose of the old covenant and all its laws, by making Jesus the fulfillment of those. And then number two, he fulfilled the promise to Abraham that they would become a blessing to the whole world by Jesus himself being the blessing that was going to redeem not just the people of Israel, but the entire world. But throughout those two covenants, throughout the two testaments, the, these two libraries of God's word, the Hebrew scriptures and the, and, the, and the Greek ones, the Christian ones, they tell the same story. They tell the story of God saying, I love you. I want you to be in my family. I want us to be a family that grows, and I want our family to be so good, so kind, so righteous, so generous that the rest of the world will look at you and see me. And whether or not they choose to join our family, they will be blessed because of who we are. They will, in the, in the Hebrew words, have blessing and peace, hesed and shalom. And we will not leave anyone on the outside looking in. See, that picture of God's plan for his people, especially his people, the church, that does sound different than what most people think about nowadays when they think about the church. In fact, it makes me think of another set of Bible glasses that far too many people wear. Maybe they just have a bad prescription. Take a look. Hello. Welcome to the first Christian church meeting. Here are the rules. Rule number one, spend all of your free time in church. Rule number two, you're not allowed to have any fun unless you're laughing at how dumb the devil is. Rule number three, wear t-shirts with my face on it. Rule number four, always smile and act happy. And finally, wear a stylish beard like mine. Well, I knew it! Jesus! Ah! No one told me about this meeting and nice try, sissy. You said I could be a Christian if I gave up all my fun and grew this beard. Look at my beard! Well, I heard that you missed the prayer meeting for a silly game. But I had tickets to the Super Bowl, Jesus! That was incredible! The Israelites drove down, kicked the field goal, and the ref said it's good! Be quiet. No, mm, uh, well, the football! No. I love football. Yeah, I can't believe my dad showed up. How embarrassing. Oh crap, my fake beard fell off. They're totally gonna kick me out. Er, uh, wait. Is what she's saying we're all going to play football or something? Yeah, football, yeah. Alright, stop. Stop crying. Rise. You can be a Christian if you... Promise to burn all of your footballs and never miss church again. Promise? Yeah, oh boy. There are a lot of rules in the local church, and not all of them make much sense. But Jesus didn't come just to water down or, or erase the rules he didn't like or double down on the rules he did. He came to offer, back to Pastor Chris's point earlier, an alternate translation.
So listen, I, I want to read from a chapter, some excerpts from a chapter in the book. It's chapter 18. They're small chapters, so it's not that far into the book. But it's, a, it's about Sidon. That's a, that's a town on the Phoenician or the, what's now the Lebanese coast. And, um, but it's also the name of an early prehistoric patriarch, I guess, of, of the human race and an antagonist to Israel throughout their history. So the name of the man and the name of the town is Sidon, S-I-D-O-N, if you want to quick like Google that while I'm talking. But you could also just listen. Here's the deal. In Genesis 9, after the flood, Noah is so exhausted from being stuck in the boat with all these animals and all the animal, you know, production stuff, he decides he wants to have a vineyard. So after they land and then get rid of all the animals, and not get rid of, I mean disperse them, he plants a vineyard and he starts drinking. In fact, he gets drunk one night and is so plastered that he falls over naked on his bed and he's got three sons, right? Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And the middle one, Ham, sees his dad naked. Now we don't know exactly how he reacted, right? Did he react like, oh my gosh, dad's nude? Or was he, was he um, judgmental? Can you believe that dad got so drunk? I mean, who knows? That, that detail's not given us. But he does get drunk, and then Ham tells his two brothers about it. I don't know, what do you guys want to do? Um, the story tells us that the two brothers, out of respect for their father's nakedness, being naked, big deal in the ancient days, they walked backwards and then laid the blanket over their father so that they wouldn't see his nakedness. But apparently that wasn't a problem to Ham. So when Noah wakes up, here's what happened. He might He's grateful to the other two, but he's really mad at Ham, so he must have done something that he felt was disrespectful, just maybe even telling the family about it. In any event, he curses, doesn't curse Ham, he curses Ham's child. He curses Ham's son, whose name is Canaan. You, you see in how, where this is going to go? I mean, think about it. If, if I get angry with you and I call you a bunch of bad names, you're like, whatever. But if I say bad things about your child, you're going to be like, hey, you're going to get really mad. It's going to really both be aggravating and it's going to hurt you because you know it's going to hurt them. Anyway, so Noah curses his grandson Canaan. And Canaan's firstborn son is named Sidon. Sidon turns out to have a whole bunch of children, grows into this relatively large city-state nation, again, on the modern area of Lebanon. And this nation-state, this city-state, grows to become a real thorn in the side of Israel over the years. And so I want to I read a couple of paragraphs that Bell uses in, from his chapter 18. Bell says this, It's interesting to note, how all this starts with a father cursing his son, but the wound festers to such a degree that a few generations later, the son's nation, Sidon, is oppressing the father's nation, Israel. Wounds always linger and spread, don't they? Also, it's interesting to note how if a wound from a father isn't dealt with and eventually healed, it inevitably affects more than just the person who was originally wounded. Why are these two nations at war? Answer, because a father cursed his son. And he didn't curse Ham that we know of for any strategic reason or just punishment. He cursed him out of shame or embarrassment. Shame is a toxic drink. And if we don't spit it out, it's going to change our whole family trajectory.
Anyway, the Sidonians end up being bad guys for the rest of Israelite history. They're the bad neighbors, the evil empire, the oppressors next door. And now I'm going to pick up with Bell again, he says, which brings us to Jesus' day. Generations of animosity between the Sidonians had built up a head of steam in the first century to the point where many of the Jewish tribe wouldn't dare go to Zidon or even talk to someone from Sidon. The bias went all the way back to Noah. And as we know from our world, these are Bell's words, when bigotry and hatred have generations to fester, they can become very, very entrenched. So that was the common belief among Jesus' tribe. We're the faithful, we're the chosen, the one God loves, we're the children of Abraham. We're in, Sidonians are out. We're on God's side, they're not. We're the winners, we're number one, they're the losers, they stink, right? But then, Bell goes on to point out, in the book of Mark chapter 7, Jesus goes to visit Sidon on purpose. And in Matthew 15, Jesus has conversations with Sidonians in which he's amazed by their faith. In the Gospel of Luke, people from Sidon come and find Jesus and he heals them. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is going through the towns of Israel and the people from his own tribe are rejecting him and refusing to respond to his miracles. And so he pokes them by announcing that Sidon will be better off in the day of judgment than they will be. Now, why is this interesting? I mean, in the Jewish world, in the Jewish glasses, the hermeneutic, the Sidonians were believed to be the outsiders, the bad guys, the cursed with the curse going all the way back to Noah. But Jesus didn't care. Jesus simply dismisses all the bad blood between them. He dismisses the biblical curse against them, and he loves on them. He goes to heal an ancient wound that the Bible records and agrees with, and he literally heals the actual people who've been cursed by the actual Bible. And then to take it way further, he insists that this hated enemy, the Sidonians, are actually closer to God, in better standing with God, than the people who believe that they're the favorites of God. In other words, the pagans are closer to God than the Christians are, in modern language. Better to be a Sidonian than a devoted religious person who thinks Sidonians are cursed, is how Bell phrases it. In other words, better to be a person on the outside of a church, longing to learn more about God or even so turned off by the church that they've given up on God than to be a self-righteous brat inside the church pointing your finger at all those bad non-church people on the front lawn. In a highly religious culture like the one Jesus lived in, people held their views tightly and sometimes with clenched fists. Not like today, right? Stories about who had God's favor and who didn't, who was cursed and who wasn't, those stories held tremendous power. But Jesus, Jesus was interested in something else. According to Jesus, God is interested in something else. What is that? Something else actually isn't a thing. That something else is a someone. And that someone that God is interested in is you. God loves you. He loves you. He loves your whole family. And he doesn't just love you, he likes you. I mean, he likes how you turned out. That might be hard to believe sometimes, but he really does. He likes the way that he made you. He likes your pros and cons, your strengths, your weaknesses, your, your, your holinesses, as few and far between as they may be. He even, he even likes your profanity, 
You're, you're trying to make sense of the world with all your frustration and anger and rage. He, he loves your joy and he appreciates your sadness. He, he mourns with you in your grief and he admires you with your grit. He values your life, your heart, and your story. Your story is messy, but you know what? Messy is real. And Jesus wants a real relationship with you. God wants a real relationship with you. And that's why he became human in Jesus Christ. But what, what Jesus wants for you is something better than your life is now. And the story that you're living now, he wants an even bolder and bigger one for you in the future. God wants you to be part of his family and his big story. So he became human in Jesus Christ to show you, number one, that your messiness isn't too gross for him. That your reality isn't too trivial for him. And then he laid down his life to show you that your sin and shame, they're not too unclean for him. That your disease and your wounds, they're not too much for him to heal. And that your being stuck on the outside looking in is not going to be okay with him. He wants to bring you, invite you, beseech you to be part of the family he first began when he whispered a promise to Abraham and Sarah. So wherever you are, wherever you are in your walk with, with God, whether you are a, a full-on believer in Jesus Christ and you're, you're thrilled with the gospel, whether you're, whether you're kind of a, just a Jesus fan, the things he said you are kind of interested in, the, some of the verses you put on your wall or your coffee mug, but you're not really all that bought into him being the, the Messiah, whether you're Christ curious, <laughs> meaning you know who Jesus is, but you think he might be the son of God, you think he might really have the power to forgive sins, but you're just kind of listening in. Wherever you are, I want you to imagine that Jesus has come into the room right now where you are, or, or into the car, where, wherever you are, into the coffee shop. He's come in. And the room is, is full of other people, it's full of other interesting things for him to look at. But he looks at you. And he looks at you in the eye. And your glasses, maybe because you've got a mask on, you're in a coffee shop, you had to wear it, right? Your, your, your glasses are fogged, you can't quite see. But you feel, all of a sudden, him touching your arm. He's touching your hand. He's asking you to, to take his hand and to trust him. He wants to invite you in to a bolder and bigger story than anything you could have asked for or even imagined. He wants your life to be changed with his love, but not changed to become lockstep, automatic in his image. He wants your life to be the life he designed for you that, that radiates and spreads the joy that come from him alone. Give him your hand, trust him with the path, and then from being, go, go from being a self-conscious and kind of in, insecure, small hero in your own little micro story to being a, a self-confident and, and super secure servant of the Most High God in the biggest story, the truest story, the most real story ever told. The story of God's Word and God's salvation that he brought to us 
through Jesus Christ and that he brought to you that you might have life abundantly in this life and eternally in the next. I hope you fall in love with this Bible and that it will nurture you in God's word until the day when you feel his hand flesh to flesh and see his eyes face to face. Amen.